Welcome to episode 17 of the Notes from Microwave podcast. I'm Peter Kieran. Alongside me, I've got Josh Wagman as always, and uh, welcome back from a couple week break. We uh, didn't get a chance to record last week. Both Josh and I were flat out busy, uh, but it's good to be back in front of the mic, and uh, we're going to share some of the things from the newsletter this week. Uh, Josh, uh, how have you been? Very busy couple of weeks off uh, from the podcast, not from work. <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, the new job transition has been. Uh, really fun, really enjoyable, but extremely busy. So um, it was nice to have a, a little bit of a breather, but definitely happy to be back talking tech with you. And I understand uh, there's a congratulations in the works for uh, a promotion for yourself. Oh, yes. I was promoted uh, this week. Actually, it's been a big week. I celebrated six years at VMware today. And last week, I got promoted to a staff cloud uh, platform architect. So uh, the kind of the staff is the top level SE band at uh, VMware. So I was pleased to get that. And uh, I, I, I celebrate all the other promotions this year. There's several others in Canada that got promoted to staff and well-deserved. So Excellent. Well, congratulations to you and and uh, the others that uh, received the promotion, I know it's well-deserved. You put in a lot of time and effort at VMware, and it's it's definitely appreciated by the community. And it sounds like it's appreciated uh, internally at VMware as well. Yeah, it, uh, I think they do a very good job of uh, recognizing, you know, the the people who go above and beyond and, and do things like that. So it's uh, it's good that way. So Excellent. Well, we've got quite a collection of... Uh, Michael White notes to get through, seeing as we've got about three weeks we can cover off from. Um, I know I've picked out a couple here and there, and uh, also wanted to talk about some Vimy stuff this week. Uh, what did you uh, find within Michael's uh, last few notes that you wanted to chat about? Well, be before we uh, start with that, maybe I will uh, just uh, talk a little bit about, I, I actually visited Michael uh, last week to help him get his home lab kind of up and running. We had a couple of issues with vCenter, so I'm going to go back tomorrow morning. But uh, he wishes everybody on the podcast well and hopes that uh, hopes that everybody's still enjoying his uh, newsletter content. It is getting more and more difficult as time goes on. Uh, his hands are in pretty bad shape, as he noted in his newsletter this week. But even I noticed him typing passwords and whatnot. Uh, he 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 described it as he only has a you know a bowl full of energy, and when the energy's gone, he's he's he needs to conserve his energy very very uh, carefully these days. So. So he can only do so much every day and, you know, even, yeah. even walking uh, is a challenge for him. So, so that's uh, tough to hear. And, and all we can do is, is send our best and our, and our thoughts to him. And hopefully every day is a good day. Yep. So, um, you know, uh, his wife suggested that he uses his voice and uh, I suggested he come on the podcast when he has energy. So uh, he, he's receptive to that, but unfortunately um, it, it's going to be a hit or miss depending on his energy levels. So we might have to do them earlier in the day rather than later, unfortunately. Yeah, completely understandable. So we'll figure out something to hopefully get him uh, back involved and, and we'll uh, let the community know as we do that. Excellent. Well, why don't we get going, Josh, and you can uh, kick us off this week with some of the things that you found interesting in this, uh, this week's newsletter or, or the, these past few weeks newsletter. Sure. Um, one of the things I found uh, in, I th believe it was a couple of weeks back, was an article uh, about the upcoming webinar functionality in Microsoft Teams, which I believe is now available. Um, I've been heavily adopting Teams over the last really year and a half uh, to two years. 
and have found the experience to be uh, very good at times, um, difficult at other times. But what I've often found, especially in professional engagements as a systems engineer or a solutions architect, is having to leverage multiple different platforms for multiple different types of presentations. And it always becomes difficult and a pain in the butt um, to have to customize each type of engagement to a particular platform. Well, having the, uh, the webinar capability right within Teams, I think is, is a great first step. I know Zoom has some functionality that way too, but uh, a great first step for Teams into that um, kind of a complete adoption where you don't have to necessarily have a secondary platform to, uh, to reach a broader audience or to have that webinar type functionality. So for me, it's a welcome feature. I will likely be using it a lot going into the future. Um, so yeah, I found it uh, quite a good uh, article. I always find uh, Microsoft always trails a little bit, but when they catch up, they catch up in a big way. And, uh, you know, I think Zoom has been kind of a front runner in a lot of those webinar slash conferencing, you know, especially during the pandemic. It's been kind of that front runner, but uh, Teams has gotten better and better over the last year. I use probably 60% Zoom and 40% Teams in my uh, in my endeavors, uh, you know, in my work life. And, uh, and you know, Teams obviously comes free with Office 365, so I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, just by default adoption of it as well. So. Yeah, and Microsoft has introduced a couple of cool features as well with Teams as part of this. And what it sounds like is that you're going to be able to have up to 20,000 attendees potentially on one of these webinars, which is a staggering uh, wow. scale and scope. <laughs> as well as they're presenting a, like a PowerPoint live and presenter mode in Teams, which is a much more powerful PowerPoint integration and a great way to share a slide deck if, if that's the substance within your, um, within your webinar. And so there's gonna be outstanding integration there with the other pieces of the Office platform. And as well, there's going to be ways to engage with your attendees after the webinar if you're leveraging Dynamics 365 and other Microsoft components that are really part of the, the new 365 ecosystem, um, how they've kind of platformed everything into that cloud software as a service platform. So all of the integrations that they can achieve through this is basically going to be an end-to-end -end solution for uh, scheduling the event presenting the event, having a, a significant number of attendees, as well as the marketing follow-up as well. And so it's really an end-to-end -end solution for companies that are engaging in this type of activity. So it's pretty exciting. And I think the follow-up's a big thing that, uh, you know, I, I haven't used in Zoom, but uh, I think is there, but I think if it's more in your face and Microsoft has always done a good job of that sort of, uh, you know, hey, let's get engagement, we'll, we'll figure out how to, yeah, follow through even you know back in SharePoint days they could track people who have touched something you know so they've got a good history of uh, of trying to build that engagement model I think that's that's a great feature absolutely yeah so it's it's definitely a huge step forward for teams and I know we've talked about teams and and different Microsoft interaction pieces like interactivity pieces and different things like that they're really focusing on this as being the next 
big, big, big piece to their puzzle. Excellent. Well, the first one that I've got this week is a pretty big one. Um, there was a, a very large uh, uh, security vulnerability that uh, VMware published last week in a security advisory, and it related wrapped around basically uh, the HTML5 client in vCenter, and more specifically the the plugin engine for the HTML5 uh, uh, that. Uh, that comes along with it. And uh, essentially there was a remote uh, exploit that was capable of executing any command on your vCenter server uh, remotely. So remote execution, uh, exploits were in the wild. So it was a criticality of 9.8, which I, I think I've seen one other time in VMware's history. Uh, so, you know, we're very, VMware is very keen on security and locking down their systems. Now, the good news is that you would have to have uh, access, you know, on port 443 to your vCenter server. So, you know, how many people have their management network networks directly, you know, connected <laughs> to the internet is probably slim in production environments, but it's still something that should be patched immediately as, you know, a malicious actor can take over that vCenter in a hurry and glean information or change settings or take down things or reboot stuff. Like the, the, the sky's the limit on it. So very, uh, very big uh, vulnerability that needs to be addressed in everybody's environment. Uh, the patch details are available in the VM security advisory. Uh, it is the uh, VMSA 2021-010 is the advisory and uh, it affects anything from 6.5 to 6.7 to 7.0. So uh, if you're running any of those vCenter uh, versions or from v VMware Cloud Foundation 3.x and 4.x, uh, you will need to uh, to do that. There is a workaround where you could disable the plugins in uh, in vCenter, but if you're running something like vSend, disabling the the vSend performance monitoring plugin or vRealize operations plugin, or if you're a vxrel customer, you wouldn't be able to manage your vxrel manager and do any patches or updates. So you know the workaround is kind of uh, I would say a stopgap measure until you can get it patched. Yeah, and I think it just highlights the um, the fact that really no platform is 100% infallible and that it's important to stay on top of patch cycles, make sure whatever's deployed in your data center, you have a good type of not just internal alerting uh, with a seam or, or some type of log gathering utility, but also from the vendor itself, you've got to really make sure that you're on top of the uh, updates that they're putting forward through the news and, and RSS feeds and different things like that, just to make sure that you're right on top of, of all of this information. Because even though it does require 443, what we're seeing, especially with the number of attacks we're seeing these days, is people are getting access physically to networks, whether it be through uh, phishing, spear phishing, or maybe just plugging in a machine somehow. And having that patch level up to date is, is absolutely critical in preventing that. Um, with my new know. role, I'm focusing on security so much more. It's amazing the stories I'm hearing. Well, just, you know, it was probably 18... 18 to 20 years ago, both you and I were working at a small oil and gas company. And one day we came in and all of our, um, all of our uh, thin clients basically were on the fritz. And it turned out 
one of the employees had their boyfriend come in and he plugged right into the uh, the network and got an IP address and started spreading a, a virus on our, our network. Luckily, the port he plugged into was only for thin clients, so it only affected the thin clients, but it could have been much, much worse. Uh, and I, I know I spent uh, an awful lot of time fixing that one. And I, I think you were there at the time too. So you yeah, I absolutely remember that. that. <laughs> and I remember how the heck did it come in? And I traced it back to the actual port where everything, you know, the, all the traffic originated and talked to the girl in that office. And she goes, oh yeah, my boyfriend is here playing games on the weekend. So, you know, Whoops. <laughs> so um, immediately I, I started a, you know, 802.x authentication mechanism on, on a whitelisted uh, bunch of MAC addresses so that if you plugged into our network, the port was dead unless it was, if there was a, a live port, you would have had to authenticate with a MAC address before you could do anything on it, so. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember being part of that MAC rollout with you and and basically my job at the time was to collect all the MAC addresses for you <laughs> and help create accounts for them in Active Directory. and and uh enable the mac filtering that way it was a pretty cool project but obviously yeah. born out of necessity yes and uh, you know when you think about you know the, the fact that we had probably 150 people out of work for uh, you know a day you know, the cost piles up really really quickly in those cases and, and we got off lucky right we didn't have any data data destroyed or there was no ransomware at the time so it, it was it was an inconvenience but it was it was still a productivity killer for those people who relied on that system to be up and running the good news was that the virus didn't actually infiltrate our our uh, you know our citrix servers at the time so so you know all their desktops weren't effective it was just the access that they needed to get access to those desktops that that was a problem yeah we got as about as lucky as humanly possible in a situation like that unfortunately these days um the, the the nature of malware is is such that there's no such thing as lucky anymore no I, this the stakes are so much higher you know 20 years later than they were when it was just a simple you know worm virus that spread you know from from machine to machine to machine over you know a winds winds response so and kind of an interesting off-topic article i read the other day and this was probably about a week week and a half old is that uh, insurance giant, I believe it was AXA, had announced they were no longer going to be insuring ransomware um, or insuring companies for ransomware attacks. And in the ultimate case of irony, uh, once they made that announcement, they were actually attacked and hit with ransomware as kind of a, um, a retaliation against taking away some of the revenue generation generation capability of, of ransomware, I guess, providers, being that AXA will not pay the ransom. It's obviously more important for companies to mitigate that through either backup or different types of security or different layers of security. And ha not having that insurance capability is going to result in far less payments being made because there's no way to get restitution for uh, having made a payment or something like that. So they were immediately attacked with ransomware. And I just kind of found it um, ironic and, and a little bit scary how quickly that these providers can react and attack a target when they want to. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's frightening uh, to see the the scale and scope of ransomware. And 
I, I, I hate to say it, but the weakest link is, is me, right? Or you or, or whoever's at the keyboard because the, you know, the spear phishing attacks are like, we regularly have, you know, phishing attacks at work. And I must say, I, I think I'm pretty good, but I still probably miss one out of 20. And it's only one out of 20 that you need to click on that link and all of a sudden something bad happens. So it, you have to be vigilant all the time. I, I know I am at home, but you know, in work, I get so many emails a day and then you know, I'm expecting something from someone and it looks legit. So I open it up. I mean, that happens all the time. And you know, as you scale up and have 20 or 30,000 employees, you know, you multiply that, you know, we're 95% good every day, you know, on 30,000 people, that's still going to be, you know, probably 5,000 attempts that were successful in a day, right? So it's, uh, the vigilance on, on and, and training on, you know, on people. And, you know, I'm a trained IT professional and, and, you know, I'm conscientious of security. So imagine, you know, the, you know, the, the auto mechanic who's inputting his invoices or, you know, X or Y or Z, they're probably not as vig vigilant as I am. And, and, you know, my, my score of 95% would probably be way less with those people. So very effective ways of doing that. And, you know, Kevin Mitnick, I was said, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be too much of a technical hacker. I'm a social engineer. And really the social engineering is what gets probably the most success. Well, and yeah, and, and in my history, and this is just kind of a personal observation, I don't know if there's any factual data to back it, but what I find is a lot of people in financial positions, especially in accounts payable, accounts receivable, when they get something labeled invoice, if it's convincing enough, they've really... They're, they're compelled to open it, depending on what the workflow of the business is. Um, and so it's not a matter of, of if, but when. And um, <laughs> there's so many different types of attacks now. It's, it's mind boggling. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely one of those things that uh, you can't let your guard down at any point in time, you know, especially when it comes to external communications or sometimes even internal communications get spoofed, um, you know, and, and you see that, uh, you, you see that out in the wild all the time. You know, it's not just the, you know, crazy Nigerian print stories anymore. It's, uh, you know, hey, you've, you bought something at Amazon, here's your order, tra your, your tracking number. And it looks like an Amazon thing and you just ordered something from Amazon yesterday. So they're really, you know, playing on, playing on the fact that, you know, we're going to make an email look like it came from Amazon, even though if you look at the header, the header clearly states that it's coming from somewhere.ru or .to or something like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's right there and it looks, it looks pretty legit. They're really crafty about how they make these things, right? I mean, Amazon well, sends out your, your order information and your order details and they copy the form and, and they just start sending out on mass, right? Here's your tracking details. And then the tracking number goes to a malicious website that injects some code. Well, and I'll even do you one better here. Um, I've been following Krebs on security for a little while now, and he's always got some really interesting articles. And he wrote about seven days ago now about the practice of fake job interviews, which is actually legitimately happening, happening um, as a form of ID theft. So uh, potential candidates for jobs being interviewed and all of their data taken through the interview process. And then people, basically there's no job at the end 
it's just a way to collect data um, on the individual, make them think they're getting a job, and then using that to take from them. And so like, to that point of social engineering, there's no limit to what these organizations will go through at this point to get data and to get what they want, which is money through very um, adverse conditions. So uh, it, it's, it's definitely something, it's so scary these days how careful you have to be in really any type of situation uh, because any situation is a potential for theft. Yep. Well, everybody stay vigilant in all of your internet practices. Don't go to scary websites, yada, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> but that, that, that advice still holds weight too. You don't want to go to a malicious website, but uh, you know, don't, uh, don't click on something you don't know. And, and this is one frankly, more I wanted to cover off on the security front before we move on. I'm sorry sure. for going on down here, but um, also uh, within this uh, same Krebs on security uh, write-up was actually one I was going to call out for sure is recycled phone numbers. So Princeton's computer science uh, faculty, uh, the organization uh, did a test of something like three to 500 different uh, retired cell phone numbers from, uh, they worked in partnership with a cell phone provider uh, I forget if it was AT&T or T-Mobile or something like that, but they got a list of numbers and they were testing them to see what would happen should they lever try to leverage these numbers for password resets on popular websites. Because with multi-factor authentication right now, your phone can pretty much get you anywhere with no login and no password. And what they found was over 50% of the phone numbers that they got from the provider allowed them access to one of the 10 or 15 popular sites. I don't think they called out the names of the sites in particular, but they all were able to get access to the sites just using these retired phone numbers without having any idea of the rest of the login information. It's, it's insanely scary. So if you are getting a new cell phone, by all means, or by God, keep your cell number. You know what, I think I've had my cell number the only time I've lost my cell numbers when I left a job and they kept the number, which I was a little bit miffed that they wouldn't transfer me the number because I brought the number into the organization and then they wouldn't let me take it out. So, but uh, since then I've, I've had the same number, I think for about 15 years. So I, I, I'm loath to get a new number. <laughs> just Yeah. I've, I've had the just, same number since multi-factor authentication started targeting cell phones instead of uh, secure tokens from RSA. Yeah. And I think that's the reason we've seen the proliferation of area codes as well is because people do pop from one plan to another and they don't want to port their number because it used to be difficult. It isn't anymore. It's, it's literally a 10 second you answer yes when they give you a text message. But even that process, by the way, is getting co-opted by hackers as well. So, uh, you know, there's there's SIM card security that, that needs to be thought of as well because I've seen uh, some people who have basically had their cell phone number stolen just so they can have their two-factor authentication get stolen and then they can get into their bank account. Yeah, you're just going to start seeing more SIM passwords there too. So yeah. anyway, 
Back to right. the uh, list. Back, back to some Michaels. Back, back to some IT stuff. Maybe some fun <laughs> stuff that's not scary and uh, you know making you want to uh, disconnect your internet right now. Which... Yeah. Now that I'm in security, everything's like it's like a horror movie Whoa! every day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Michael had a great link to an article by Jorge de la Cruz, a Veeam employee, uh, about Wasabi announcing their hot cloud storage with object lock support. So Wasabi's long been a Veeam partner and where Wasabi kind of comes into play is if you want to leverage object storage for your Veeam backups, but you don't want to pay a significant amount of egress or any egress because okay. uh, with Wasabi, there's no API or transaction costs or anything like that. And all of Wasabi's storage is considered hot tier. So, um, it's high performance object storage in the cloud and it's taken them a little while, but they finally are able to announce that they've got full object lock uh, providing immutability for those Veeam backups. So very exciting. Um, it's, they've been a great Veeam partner over the years and it's just nice to see this functionality. And I believe that's S3 compatible storage as well, right? So yeah, they basically what, uh, what took some time is Wasabi had to, uh, take a couple of steps in order to meet that S3 object lock API uh, verbatim. So they had some type of implementation that wasn't quite right, um, 100% based on the API provided by, um, or the protocol provided by Amazon. So now they've gone back and they've uh, rejigged that and now it, uh, it fits and it's certified. Oh, perfect. So basically the object lock talks about uh, data immutability. So if you're doing backups and you don't want them to ever change uh, from a legal hold perspective, that's really important to have immutable data. But from a backup perspective, it's equally as important because you don't want to have your backups get uh, encrypted by ransomware or, or, or deleted or X or Y or Z. So uh, most definitely uh, important thing to have there. So, yeah, it looks... Uh, Definitely looks like a very interesting uh, offering. Uh, I love the fact that there's no egress charges and no API request charges because you think, oh, geez, it's you know 0 0.0001 cents per API request. You, you don't think that's a lot, right? Until you do a million requests every couple of minutes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, ooh, it, it adds up <laughs> to a lot as some poor unfortunate soul on Twitter who was doing a... Uh, uh, an AWS uh, student course and racked up $8,000 worth of AWS charges. So, you know, be careful with your, uh, with your billing. Use a, uh, use a credit card. That's a, uh, <laughs> that's a, uh, just a, you know, a pay-as-you-go credit card if you're going to do that, that's for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next on the list for you? Well, um, you know, we'll switch gears a little bit. Um, one of the things that I saw in his article here was, um, Way, way down at the end, but it talks about Apple Music lossless and spatial audio, right? And uh, essentially it talks about, um, you know, the, the new um, Apple Music that basically have, have gone lossless and also the capability to have spatial audio. And uh, I got the, uh, I actually was out of my trailer this weekend and I was sitting by the fire and I threw my AirPod Pros in and spatial audio with uh, Pink Floyd is exceptional. I'll just I'll just say it as that it was uh, it was a pretty phenomenal musical experience just to have everything kind of flow around you as as they kind of it, it was almost like a seven one you know stereo experience where you're sitting in the middle of the room and the, you know everything's kind of washing or all around you and you know I was just 
sitting there in my chair by the fire. So really neat that way. And, you know, obviously Apple Music Lossless is, is a new offering and I think they're gonna play a little catch up with some of their existing technology. Uh, I don't think Lossless is supported by my AirPod Pros at the moment, but uh, uh, it is on HomePods. So uh, your, your HomePod will play the Lossless music. So looking forward to some better quality music uh, from, from that. And, you know, if you're an Apple uh, ecosystem, uh, subscriber, it's you know, it's it's a no charge extra, so it's a, it's good to see something you know coming out without any additional. Oh, you have to be in the premium tier to get this. Nope, just anybody who has Apple Music is going to get it. So, yeah, that's the best part is it's really a free upgrade, um, and it's really just there, so you don't have to necessarily worry about doing much, too much work finding it. Um, I do you remember back in the day there was a speaker company by the name of Nuance? You remember yep. them? I do know nuance. Yep. So the, the, the funny thing is they were insanely expensive speakers. They weren't terrible speakers, but they really weren't necessarily something that was that much better than anything else, or really as good as some of the, what the audiophile top end brands would have been. But what they, what I remember from going and listening to them is they leverage spatial audio to kind of, try to trick the consumer a little bit into thinking they're getting more than they are. And really it had nothing necessarily to do with the particular speakers you were listening to more the way they were playing it back and using that spatial audio. And the one takeaway was spatial audio is so cool. Um, <laughs> having the capability to listen to that, but I just, it just, as soon as I saw this, that's the first thing I thought is like, Oh, nuance. <laughs> yeah. And and if you uh, if you ever want to throw your AirPod Pros in or or other spatial audio capable devices, uh, do a search on YouTube for binaural audio, or uh, it uh, it'll basically have a whole bunch of little things where you, someone's walking around the room, knocking on doors in the room, and you can hear where they are in the room, and their footsteps are walking away or walking towards you. It's really a it's a it's an interesting experience, that's for sure. Yeah, I think one of the concerts they used to demo was like Eagles or something like that in Spatial, which was pretty cool. But I'm a Pink Floyd fan as well. So that's I'd like to hear the pulse or something like that in, the, in Spatial. Excellent. Uh, let's just see what else I've got from his newsletter because there's a couple other things. Um, uh, one of the things, um, I picked up some AirTags and uh, my experience with them has been just was ridiculously easy to set up and uh you know i've got them uh, shoved in my camera bag and, and you know i've got to set on my keys um apple as i was has made you know air tag accessories and uh an industry on its own so you know i wasn't going to pay you know 45 dollars for a keychain holder for my air tag from apple so i went out to amazon and found some and they got delivered three weeks later but you know some nice little other things that hang out of your keys but uh what i was impressed with was just uh, uh i threw my camera bag in in my kid's car just to to have a little test and then had them drove around and uh, i was able to track that on find mine and it does it by actually uh bluetooth uh, ultra wideband and if there's another apple device anywhere near it it'll basically transmit the little bluetooth uh, code through that phone back up to find my audio. So, you know, it, even if you lose it on a bus and there's someone with an Apple device on that bus, it'll still keep tracking it. So, you know, unlike a, a tile where you may lose connection to it if it's, you know, you know not responding right away, th this uh, 
basically crowdsources your your find my x right and the setup was super simple so i was i was pretty impressed with it so i'll be interested to see in what the long-term security findings are on the crowdsourcing nature of the the tags yeah i think there's going to be some uh, lockdown on some of that there has to be because uh, for example let's say i took an i an air tag and i threw it into someone's backpack right now it could virtually stalk them right and i think there's going to be some challenges wrapped around some of that and uh, you don't necessarily want to have that so i think there'll be some sort of a you know um opt-out or encryption or or some warning that there's an air tag near you on your phone something along those lines right so yeah it de definitely some interesting ramifications to come from that like the functionality is outstanding uh, i agree but yeah I, i've i've been hearing some positives and some negatives from a security standpoint from from a security standpoint by all means i think the fact that it is broadcasting that that ultra wideband bluetooth you can definitely scan for it and, and see what's going on and i think there is some you know social engineering aspects that are going to need to be addressed as well. And, you know, I talked about the stalking aspects, but there's probably others that, I, you know, I haven't thought of. Yeah, absolutely. So the next on, uh, on my list was one that I've done a number of times in my home lab, and that was VCSA killed. <laughs> um, so this <laughs> oh, article you, was you, written you, by you, Tina. You've killed, and... you've killed a VCSA? Congratulations. Welcome to the club. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot I love about the VMware platform. VCSA and myself have a very difficult relationship and it's very complicated. Um, within my lab environment, I, I've bricked more than a couple trying to run upgrades on them or updates. And um, basically, uh, this goes through the process of, of bringing back online uh, vCenter, uh, if that's the situation. And there's some... Uh, interesting uh, functionality from time to time with the installer as well. Although I do like the way that VMware has made potentially a difficult install, relatively simple if it works. Um, you can run into the odd gremlin that might prevent that from happening from time to time. But the big takeaway here is make sure you've got some type of backup of that appliance before you apply any updates at all. Um, I've always made sure to have an off-platform backup or a replica of the VCSA before hitting that upgrade button. And uh, that's that's made my life a lot better in the last couple of years. Well, I delivered a uh, What's New in vSphere 7.0 talk at uh, the last uh, VMworld that was had people in the stands. And uh, <laughs> the biggest applause in my presentation was when I said, hey, we now support a scheduled backup of your vCenter. And literally, it was the biggest new feature that everybody was like, yes, thank God. <laughs> because it is a pain in the rear if you don't have a backup and you have to rebuild from scratch, especially with distributed switches and X and Y and Z. All those configurations can take time and energy. And quite frankly, you can break things really easily if you don't have the correct um, correct distributed switch so, yeah. yeah and well and frankly like vmware such done such a good job with the software defined data center but it's it's very tightly coupled with vcenter and all of the functionality provided by that as a management platform so um, obviously it's become not just a way to make sure high availability is available but it goes far beyond that now into the actual management of the network into the storage and all of those components that require some type of 
bind to vCenter. Excellent. Well, uh, anything else that uh, you want to uh, you, you want to run through? I, I know we're we're about uh, thirty minutes into this episode, so I don't want to drag it on for too long if we don't need to. Is there anything else that was compelling out there? I've got one more myself, and then uh, but I'll let you have the first crack here. No, I think I'm good right now. I what I'd like to do is Vmon was this past week, so I think it would be a good idea to probably try to wrangle someone up from Veeam to come and talk about. Uh, what was announced there perhaps for next week. Perfect. A um, couple other things were wrapped around, you know, upcoming conferences. Uh, uh, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference is, uh, is on June the 7th or June the 8th, I should say. Uh, June the 7th through, through the 10th, I think, but June the 7th is the, is the keynote. So we'll look forward to seeing what comes of uh, any new announcements from Apple. I'm expecting probably, you know, iOS update, a Mac OS update, and possibly a new MacBook. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely keep a keen ear to the ground on, on what's going to happen there. But uh, in other news, um, if anyone is looking to become a V expert, the V expert is opening in five days, uh, applications for the second half of 2021. I've been a two-time V expert, and uh, we look forward to new members every year, and we look forward to new people contributing to the V community. And uh, if you do want to apply, please reach out to myself. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CanmoreMan, and you can DM me. My DMs are always open. So if you need some help with an application or just want to talk about what the program will give you and, and what opportunities it gives you from a, from, a, um, from a personal perspective, I can definitely share those with you. Uh, the other thing in that same vein is I want to just thank Cohesity for the great V-Expert gift that they provided to V-Experts this year. It was a, a decanter with a couple of uh, very nice uh, scotch glasses, so I'm sure I'll put those to good use over the next little bit. But uh, um, yeah, I think that's about uh, what I've got. The only last thing that I really wanted to point out was if you're a V-Realize operations user, uh, there is a... Um, a great article about how to build a rotating overview dashboard with a scoreboard and heat map widgets that can basically roll through. So if you've ever been into a you know an operation center and you see the, the big monitors on the wall, there are always you know rolling you know tickets and and heat maps and all that sort of stuff. If you want to build something like that, um, uh, Victorious.nl has a great uh, series of articles. Uh, it's a four-part series on building a uh, uh, rotating overview dashboard with uh, scoreboard and heat map widgets. So you can uh, you can figure out how to do that. Figure out how to build the dashboard interactions. Uh, all of those sorts of things are in the, in that. And uh, he is a well, he's got so many stars on his V-Expert, I can't count them all. I think he's a 12-time or a 13-time V-Expert. So uh, by all means, he's uh, one of those people that really has helped the, the V community and keeps giving back. And his blog is, is one that I keep continuously bookmarked as well. And just to backpedal briefly, oh, that was weird. Um, just to backpedal briefly, what are some of the activities that one would have to undergo in order to be considered for a V expert for those who haven't tried before? So essentially what we look for from a V expert perspective is we want people who are giving back to the community. Uh, and, and specifically, you can do that in many ways. For example, I don't blog, but a lot of our V experts have been traditionally bloggers. Uh, you know, doing a podcast like uh, the, like we are doing is another great way to engage. Uh, giving presentations at VMworld or at VMugs or at any of the V forums, or being active on the uh, on the community uh, 
the, the community board on the VM page. So the VMware community page uh, has a place where you can go and interact and help people with problems. So those are, are great places for you to get enough exposure to be accepted into the program. Um, it is a competitive program to get into. Uh, they don't accept everybody who applies, but uh, what I find is the more the the more visible you are in, you know, Twitter or or uh, blogging or podcasting or you know all of those sorts of things combined help bring the profile of, of yourself up and help bring the profile of VMware up as well. And that that's kind of what they're looking for. And what you get out of it is um, you get you get early access to stuff. So they, let's say you've got a particular interest in uh, NSX or, or vSphere specifically, and we're going to come out with a new announcement. You might get a week early uh, announcement to talk about that. And then there's lots of sub-programs that, that uh, the various business units in VMware sponsors. So if you're a VMware expert in NSX, for example, there is a a badge, you know, that you can get in a subprogram to be the, you know, a V expert in the NSX, right? So you can actually have a subprogram as well as being a generalist. You can you can definitely deep dive, and there are many V experts who are just, I'm I'm a VRA guy. I'm a VRA expert. That's all I do. But I blog about it, or I talk about it, or I give a talk at VMugs about it. That's the kind of uh, thing that they're looking for for V experts. Is basically we want you to be that evangelist for the VMware platform in any way that you can can be and uh, we've had a, a large number this year of first-time v experts and it was uh, really fun to see a couple of the ones that i helped uh, helped with some applications uh, made it in and they didn't think they didn't think they were good enough and quite frankly when i applied for it um you know i thought about applying it for it for a couple of years and didn't just because i didn't think i did enough and then when i was talking at vmworld with a few other of my colleagues and they're like i can't believe you're not a v expert i'm like what do you mean i i'm not a v expert and they're going well you share way more with uh, with everybody at vmworld than a lot of the other v experts do and so you know just by being available and sharing your knowledge with people and and being able to articulate that back in your application is i think the most important thing so we'll definitely appreciate that insight so as mentioned if if anyone wants to give that a shot and, and try their luck at the application for VExpert, and if you're contributing to the community, uh, reach out to Peter and, um, and, and uh, he'll help you down the road of how to get there. Thanks very much. And with that, shall we wrap it up? Uh, unless there's any last things you want to mention or anything else? Nope. Just sending best wishes again to Michael. Uh, feel better. Feel good. I hope every day is a good day. And uh, yeah, it was nice chatting with you again. Excellent. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to have Michael on uh, on the show at some point time soon so that everybody can hear the sultry tones of Mr. White and uh, we can go from there. With that, we'll wrap up episode 17 and uh, we'll look forward to next week's edition. Uh, we should be trying to do these more regularly on Tuesday nights. Uh, we've, since Josh and I's schedule is very, uh, very busy, we've decided to do these in the evening so that we can uh, basically do these in a, in a really regular cadence. So look forward to kind of a Tuesday night slash Wednesday morning uh, drop on the podcast. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Yep. See you next week.